Welcome to the Prison Post. This is our monthly policy edition hosted by CROP's Director of Business Development, Ken Oliver. As a former policy director himself, Ken invites guests who keep their fingers on the pulse of current legislation and how California's laws are both impacting currently and formerly incarcerated citizens. These thoughtful conversations provide insight into the direction that our state is moving and what we can do to help in mass incarceration while responsibly reforming our prison system. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Prison Post Policy Hour. My name is Ken Oliver, your host, uh, business development director at the Crop Organization. We're here today to talk policy, California policy, national policy, and I have a very esteemed guest, Mr. Michael Mendoza, who is the Director of National Advocacy at the Anti-Recidivist Coalition. How are you doing, Michael? Great, Ken. You're too kind, my brother. Just a pleasure to be here with you. Absolutely. It's good to see you again. Uh, I know Michael from uh, my policy work when I was at LSPC as the uh, policy director there, and we've done a lot of advocacy both in the state uh, and with other organizations. So it's a pleasure to have you. Good to see you again. I consider you a friend and I'm just glad you're here today to speak to the likewise, people bro, and, likewise. and talk about uh, some of the criminal justice reform going on in California. I guess for our listeners that don't know you, uh, like I do, I think you have a very interesting story and background, and I'd be interested uh, in learning and having our listeners learn about your background, how you got involved with the criminal justice reform movement, how you got justice involved, and just tell us a little bit about how you grew up and your background. No, I appreciate the opportunity, Ken. I mean, quite honestly, my uh, story is is not unique. Unfortunately, it's very similar amongst our uh, black and brown brothers and sisters uh, within the criminal justice space. And, you know, it's exactly what I am. I'm a brown kid that grew up in Southern California uh, during the mid-90s, you know, when Pete Wilson was our governor and President Clinton was signing the Tough on Crime bill that allowed kids as young as 14 to be tried as adults. And, you know, growing up in poverty, unfortunately, I made some really bad decisions that led me the wrong way, um, where I found myself standing before a judge at the age of 15. Wow. Uh, being tried and sentenced as an adult and being told that I was going to spend the rest of my life in adult prison. Um, and, you know, it was one of the most hopeless moments in my entire life. I, I was trying to figure out how uh, my first 15 years of existence in this world led to that moment. Like, what did I do and what's going on here? Um, and, you know, I quickly learned a, a rough lesson real quick, as you know, uh, entering into the adult criminal justice system, being told by mostly everyone around me that I was never going to go home. You know, get used to this little homie because this is going to be the rest of your life. Right, right, right. You know, and so I entered into the adult institution with that mentality. I was 17 years old um, in 1998, Calipatch State Prison. Uh, you know, it was on and cracking in Gladiator those days. School. Gladiator <laughs> School. And um, riots kicking off, my first time in the prison yards. And that was a rude awakening I had. And, you know, with the anger and, and the hopelessness that, um, uh, the, the, that the message that I received from the rest of the community kind of fueled me in that direction. And unfortunately, that was my life for the next 10 years while I was serving my incarceration um, until policy saved my life. Uh, you know, it wasn't just policy that saved my life. It was uh, a few loved ones that I had still in my corner there, you know, telling me that encouraged me to do the best I can to change. Um, and I would always do the best I can and hit walls. And even when I would go to the board and hit that denial, and, and you know, it was just always so discouraging. Um, until this beautiful woman came into my life, 
that we all know by the name of Elizabeth Calvin. Elizabeth. Shout right? out to Elizabeth. Shout out to Elizabeth Calvin. Human Rights Watch. Human Rights Watch, exactly. Um, I remember getting a letter from her, from HRW, asking me about my age and how old I was. And, you know, just things that I believe nobody really cared about. Um, and when she was telling me about this law that could possibly change and give me hope and be able to prove that I was no longer that 15-year-old kid anymore, I... I couldn't believe it, but yet I did everything I could to make sure that the next time I went to the board, that I was going to show them that I was no longer that 15-year-old kid anymore, Sure, that I had built a life, and then I was prepared to go home, and sure enough, when SB, 13, when SB uh, 260 passed in 2013, and I was one of the first ones to go to the board when it was enacted the next year, it was just such a different hearing than the ones before. Um, they actually took my age into consideration, uh, and they actually saw that I had, you know, uh, grown and matured. Um, and I paroled in 2014, and it was a, you know, one of the biggest moments in my life. Uh, I went on to get my BA degree in political science at SF State University um, because, you know, once I saw how policy can, can change lives and save lives and give people hope, I wanted to do the exact same thing. Sure. I wanted to change laws and provide people hope that I left behind that I knew no longer belonged there. Sure. I want to I want to go back just a minute and, and touch on something that you brought up, because we had crop talk a lot about uh, changing the mindset for yourself when you're in the prison environment and taking the lid off of the possibilities that exist and how we oftentimes when we go to prison, especially when we're young, we buy into this mindset of the way that it is on the prison yard for gang culture, for uh, race, racial culture, et cetera, and so forth. And it's really alienating and self-destructive in so many ways. And we, we tend to feel that sense of hopelessness and that this is our life. We don't have a choice, but really the contrary is true. And so I'm interested in hearing from you when you reach that moment from going to places like Calipatra and level four prisons when you had that moment in your life, when you knew that there was a possibility for something more or greater for yourself? You know, that's a great question. Um, and there's this memory I have that I'll never forget. Um, you know, I was in Soledad State Prison. It was my first level three. Uh, I, you know, I was still doing things I wasn't supposed to do. And I woke up one day and I, and I saw myself looking in the mirror and I know I knew I no longer knew who I was anymore. I couldn't tell who I had become since that fifteen year old kid that was arrested. But one thing I was starting to realize in the game I was playing was that if I continued to do the same thing I was doing, thinking the same way I was thinking, and progressing in the same way I was progressing, I was gonna either end up dead or in the shoe for the rest of my life. Sure. And it's not what I wanted, nor was it what I wanted for my friends and comrades around me, because I knew that deep down inside there was a better alternative that we can get to and work towards if we can get around and grow past the trauma that we all faced. Uh, because one thing that I have learned and that we have all learned is that, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a traumatic experience doing time in a system that is so ingrained with institutional racism, not just within our own groups, but even within the institution and the state itself. Sure. 
Uh, and that's what we have to battle all the time. Absolutely. Well, I just think that, you know, it's amazing that you were able to reach that point where you knew that there was something else for yourself. And I think that everybody in the prison environment, I'm a firm believer that nobody wants the situation that exists internally. I mean, I've had conversations with people that claim to be Aryan brotherhoods and they were like a friend. I've had conversations with people that thought that they were uh, so entrenched in, you know, gang culture, Mexican mafia or NF or whoever. And normally when they're in that crowd, they can't speak to you because they're black or a black can't speak to whoever. But then when you get in these private moments, whether they're at work or in, in the shoe fishing or whatever, this other humanity comes out, right? The real person where they're willing to talk sports with you, girlfriends, family life, et cetera, and so forth. So I, it always dawned on me that a lot of that was a veneer. And so many of us just to get along, buy into that veneer. And so I just think it's, it's worth commending you on the fact that at some point you broke through that veneer and decided on having a different future for yourself. And ultimately that's what led to get you out of prison. Uh, so I, what I'd like to do is, is, is transition a little bit into the work that you do, because a lot of people don't know the tremendous work I know personally because I've been in it with you. But I, I want everyone who's listening to know about the tremendous work Michael has done, how he got there. Right. Because I'm interested in knowing how you landed at a place like ARC when you got out, how you got into policy, what your trajectory was like, because I think it's important to tell that story. So can you tell us how you got to ARC when you first got out and that whole story? Most definitely. Uh, one of my favorite stories that begins with uh, one of my true heroes, Elizabeth Calvin, who wrote the bill, um, SB 260, that gave me the opportunity to you know, fight for my freedom. And, you know, when I came home and she had asked me, you know, I'm going to be working on some more bills you know, to try to improve this for other youth. And, she, you know, she asked me, she's like, I need help. And in my mind, you know, how could I not? come to the side of somebody who saved my life and fight alongside them to help save others. Sure. Knowing how powerful that was. And so there I was, you know, even though I was working full time, even though I was going to SF State University full time, you know, sometimes I ditched class just to go to Sacramento, California and advocate on certain bills. Right. right. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes I would tell you know, my employers while I was working in a factory, you know, bagging up groceries or vegetables that, you know, I, I had some really important things I wanted to do in terms of civic engagement to share my voice, to share my story. And, you know, I don't regret doing any of it. Uh, because, you know, with Elizabeth Calvin and through Elizabeth Calvin, I then met Scott Budnick, uh, my dear friend, a dear friend to us all who founded the Anti-Recidivism Coalition shout in out to Scott. Shout out to Scott. Big shout He's out to Scott. He's led a lot of this work, this reform work. Probably wouldn't have taken the trajectory that it has over the last 10 years without Scott and the wonderful work he's done. Exactly. It's been two uh, of the most amazing individuals who recognize uh, the value of our of our youth and how we need to invest in our youth and how our system was failing our youth. And so, you know, getting involved with ARC at a very early uh, stage in 2014, I remember Scott took us to the White House for the very first time when Obama was there. Wow. And it was the very first time that the White House had ever had around 15 uh, so-called felons into the White House at the same time. Wow. And it was just an eye-opening experience for not just me, but the other members who were there. And it's an example of how when people who are out here who are not system impacted, 
embrace people who are reentering into the communities and give them experiences that they've never had before, what it does to just wake up that fire right. within you to be a part of your community. And that's what they are really good at is they're good at not leading it by uh, standing in front of folks, but by pushing folks in front of them sure, and leading behind them. And that's what they've done. That's what we've built at ARC where, you know, now we have an organization that not just provides direct services for people coming home, opportunities for housing, uh, jobs and education, but opportunities to advocate sure. uh, because that's what we're doing in California for the last 10 years, being able to pass bills, uh, amazing bills with other amazing partners like All of Us or None, uh, Human Rights Watch, just so many amazing individuals in this space that we try to fight alongside with for the most important reason and the goal that we all want as that arc bends, right? Absolutely. Um, and so... For me, it was just a no-brainer to get involved in this advocacy work because it taught me how to work alongside with anybody, regardless of the formerly incarcerated or not, because that's what we need in this space. Sure. We need all hands on deck to undo the generations of systemic oppression that we face today, and it's not going to be easy. It's going to continue to be a journey for us. Sure. I want to go back, and, and, and you said something that was so poignant and something that I advocate every chance that I get, which is almost every day, to talk about the importance of those experiences that light fires in front of people. Because we come from communities in many cases that don't have a lot of experiences outside of our sandbox, whether that's in South Central L.A. or in a place like East Oakland or the tender um, the Tenderloins in Frisco or any other uh, impoverished neighborhood across California. Typically, when we grow up and we, we see our environment, we're confined to what we see in those places. And I, I try to explain to people that allowing someone who's never seen anything to see and touch and smell something else like your trip to the White House or maybe a program at Cal Berkeley or maybe, you know, a Sacramento Kings basketball game or going to work out with the Lakers, for example, how transformational that is because for many of us, and I don't want to speak for everybody, but for many of us, I know from experience who go through the criminal justice system, we've already been traumatized before we even get to the door through the life experiences that we've had in many cases. Um, and then when we get through the door of prison, we're traumatized even further and we're constantly being told that we have a lid on who we are that we fit into these small boxes of stereotypical stuff, right? And we start to believe a lot of that stuff. I mean, I've sat in groups with grown men, people that have done a lot of things that people would say were terrible, gang members, et cetera, and watch them recall, recall or recount an experience when they were seven with their father or mother or uncle, and they'd well up with tears, Right. And so I, I knew watching these experiences that, you know, a lot of us had arrested development. Right. We stopped being kids when we were young and we started hitting the streets and we were forced to become men or in, in the case of women, grown women. And so I just I just I'm so glad that you said something about being exposed to experiences because that is transformational. Can you tell tell me just a little bit about your own personal experience going to the White House, meeting Obama, being in that environment? What did that do for you as a formerly incarcerated person? You know, that was an amazing experience that I, I just hope to not just duplicate for others, but um, continue to do. And, uh, you know, it reminded me as you were 
mentioning this topic about how important it is and why we even fight for communities to be resourced, right? Because at the issue of what you're talking about is the issue of people in poverty being under-resourced in their communities in a way that doesn't provide these opportunities for our youth or, or people of color, um, you know, through schools and education. Because you and I both know and remember that going to school, you know, we may have missed uh, what those six sixth grade field trips because we didn't right. have money or, you know, just looking at the way we were fed lunches right. uh, with the, how much of money we were getting into our education. Um, you know, that's the battle that we fight on the micro level and the macro level for us um, in terms of the narrative where it's always a challenge um, to gain access, exposure uh, into opportunities that, you know, everybody should ha- be exposed to regardless of your background or where you come from. And when we are able to gain those experiences and bring others alongside with you who've never had them before, it just builds up this fire and this hope of what is possible. Sure. Um, because many of the times we're only limited to the experiences we have, and that means we limit what is possible because right. we can't see the bigger picture. And so I, I fully believe that when we are able to provide experiences to anyone, um, regardless of the background or what they've gone through, that it allows them to think big, sure, to think bigger and to reach for those North Star goals that normally we wouldn't reach to because we wouldn't think to be possible. Right. So at what point would I have ever thought that I'd be uh, standing inside the White House after doing right. all of that time, after being called a super predator and murderer and all of those things, never in my wildest dreams would I thought I'd be there. Sure. And now that I've experienced it, now it's it might be even possible that one day I might be able to work there. Right. You know, so it does wonders for our people. And, and, and I think it's something that we need to continue to fight for and make sure that communities are resourced to provide those opportunities to our young ones. And, and we see that we, we've seen that even in the CBO community, right, where you see so many people that are formerly incarcerated whose lives have been transformed just to be able to do the work, whether it's organizing, whether it's policy, whether it's housing, whether it's being, you know, certified alcohol and drug counselors. You see a whole new light in the same human beings that on the prison yard may have looked dead, so to speak. Right. And so the opportunity to get into a career, the opportunity to do meaningful work. The opportunity to get paid like you're supposed to get paid and be able to pay your own rent. There's a dignity that comes with that. There's a hope that comes with that. And it's very redemptive. And uh, I just think that's amazing uh, of what you did at the White House or what you were able to experience. And, you know, I, I would encourage people who have the opportunity to provide experiences for people that that's a, a major component of transformation is exposure. Studies in science have said it for years is that, you know, people typically become what they're exposed to. And so the more you're exposed to, you know, the, the more uh, diverse you can become and the more opportunities you have. So I appreciate you sharing that piece. So let's let's transition a little bit away from that and go into criminal justice reform in California. Here we go. And uh, let's talk a little bit. I mean, me and you have been involved in the work for the last year or so and you longer than I. Um, why in 2020? given the pandemic, uh, given unemployment and all of the other problems that California faces, because we know that we face a lot of problems currently. Uh, 
not to mention what's going on nationally at the White House, right, and some of the uh, other stuff. Why is criminal justice reform important, and why should people who aren't involved in the criminal justice system per se directly be concerned with criminal justice reform in California? What are some of the consequences? What are some of the reasons we should be paying attention to this stuff? Yeah, I'll I'll tell you why. Um, But first, I want to correct something you said. You said that I've been in this work longer than you have. Um, And and I think that uh, one of the things I want to encourage people to understand is that just because I've been out here longer than you doesn't mean that I've been doing this work longer than you. Uh, Many of us started this work the day we were incarcerated. And so I know you just as well as others were fighting from the inside as most of us were fighting out here. So we've been doing this together for a lot longer than you think. I appreciate that. Um, But in terms of your question, 2020 is huge. Um, I mean, let me just paint the bigger picture of nationally how huge 2020 is and the the, the presidency. Um, I mean, I don't need to know how much I need to say on on the presidency (laughs) and how important that is. But we're also talking about, you know, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court justice who's going to take that seat and how important that is and and laws that are going to be tried to establish and made or changed after that. Um, but when we come back to, to, to California and, and the elections, we're not just looking at, you know, uh, elected officials, assembly members, senators. We're looking at DA races. And most importantly, we're looking at propositions, sure. veto referendums, ballot initiatives um, that really want to undo and roll back uh, some of the most recent and important wins that we have seen in the last 30 years. I'm talking about 30 years. And what I mean by 30 years is in California, if you look back at the last five governors, starting with Pete Wilson, nothing was moving then. Um, the only thing that moved was Brown versus Plata. Uh, a decision that a three-court judge made to reduce the prison population. Why? Because it became so overcrowded that the conditions were inhumane and and, and cruel and unusual, violating our uh, constitutional rights of human beings. Men and women were dying. That's how bad it got. You remember that. That's how bad it got. And we still didn't see any remedies till years later after 2011. Um, you know, I can go on and we can talk about, you know, after 2011 Brown versus Plata, how we saw, you know, SB 2, uh, 216, 2013, um, Prop 47, AB 109, Prop sure, 57. Sure. We saw a lot of important things that the state tried to do to address the three court judge ruling. So many, many things were done showing that we needed to reduce the prison population based on that ruling because of how overcrowded it was. I mean, at one point I remember it got so bad that I was sleeping on a triple bunk. Right. I, I mean, I basically had to like crawl my way into the middle rack of a bunk, right. you know, just to well, wait, wait a minute, Mike, a lot of people don't know what a triple bunk is. Can you explain what a triple bunk is, especially in a place like the gym or a day room and what that looks like? Right. And so if you imagine, what a normal bunk bed looks like. You have a bed on the bottom and immediately on top of that bed, you have a bed on top, a regular bunk bed. Imagine if you extend it just a little bit more and you add a bed right in the middle right. of the top rack, right. top bed or the bottom bed. And there's just, it confines you even more. Uh, and then when you imagine that triple bunk bed, whether it's, you know, in a cubicle, whether it's in a gymnasium, 
uh, and, and with five or ten of them all around you, um, that's how overcrowded it got. Sure. That's how bad conditions got. And so the state did everything they could to address it. Um, and I think at that moment, you know, uh, there was a shift in the narrative, too, where California started be, to begin and realize that uh, punishment was not the answer. Sure. Being tough on crime was not the answer. And they started to dig into their values of what mercy and, and hope and, and grace looked like within the criminal justice system. And so we had major wins like Prop 57 who that allowed uh, people inside to earn credits and gave them some hope to come home sooner, um, but also changed the face of the juvenile justice system and giving judges discretion on whether youth should be tried as adults or not. And that's what the voters voted for. Sure. They voted for rehabilitation. And, and now in 2020, uh, we're at a very, very dangerous point where some say that we have gone too far. And those who say that we have gone too far are mostly law enforcement. And unfortunately, uh, the, 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 the fact of the matter is we had just made these wins. So we, have, we even haven't had enough time to show how important they are, except for the fact that you know, now crime rates are low. And people who are considered violent offenders who have been released through the parole board governed by the California uh, governor, those who have been released have the lowest recidivism rates out of all populations. Absolutely. Less than 3% ever go back to prison. And so we have a lot of data, um, not just in recidivism rates, but you know, brain science and youth and development and how important programs are. And in 2020, we have uh, a ballot initiative, Prop 20, that can take all that away if people don't vote no on Prop 20. Um, and so it's not just about voting no on Prop 20 to protect our wins of what public safety should really look like. Sure. Um, but it's about voting, period, for for elected officials and for your champions that know what criminal justice reform is about. And that's what at stake is at stake here in 2020. Right. I, w- I want to get into some of the propositions because there's a lot of talk about uh you know, propositions. There's a lot of things that the governor uh, just recently signed in the law. And we're going to get to that, but I want to go back a little bit and discuss or flush out a little bit about why criminal justice reform is so important in the state and across this country. And I think some of the conversations have to be centered on whether we want to continue as a community, right? As a state, as a nation to buy into this retributive model, this eye for eye, tooth for tooth. When most of us in our daily life don't believe in that. We tell our kids, you know, don't go out there and look for retribution or revenge, find other ways to to get the job done. But yet in our criminal justice system for so long, and you prefaced the nineties earlier, we were on like if a person does X, we want to lock them up and throw away the key. It got so bad at one point we were taking fourteen year old kids who haven't even even entered high school and we were putting them in adult prisons right. and, and giving them life sentences. And so I think that I think it's important for Californians to understand and reflect on whether we want to be about personal transformation of people and human beings, men and women, regardless of uh, an act that they've committed or a mistake that they've made, or whether we want to get into and stay into the retributive model. The retributive model has been shown, as you mentioned, to be harmful. It doesn't redeem people. It doesn't transform people. In fact, it further traumatizes people. And so, you know, even though the emotional response is someone broke in my car, lock them up, et cetera, we know that those policies don't work because they cost taxpayers a lot of money. I think 
CDC's budget is $15 billion a year this year. Uh, law enforcement in this state hovers over 40 or $50 billion a year. Uh, so it's really about finding other models of transformation. You and I do this work. So we see the, the transformation that takes place when you actually embrace people rather than have that retribution revenge type model and push people further away and alienate them rather than embrace them. Uh, so I think that that's very important. Um, and I appreciate, you know, you touching on that and, and talking about why that's important. Now, in reference to the propositions, right? A lot of hot button topics uh, going on in criminal justice uh, in the next month or so uh, at the ballot box. And, and as you mentioned, we encourage everybody to vote. I'm going to throw that out there right up front. And we're going to talk about why that's important. And the first one I want to talk about is Proposition 17. Free the vote. Uh, free the vote. Uh, free the vote 2020, uh, which was uh, previously ACA 6, uh, a constitutional amendment to allow people who have served their time and gotten out of prison to vote, even though they may be under supervision uh, in the form of parole. Uh, why is that important for 50,000, which isn't a big number when you look at the California population? Why do you think that's important for people to give folks back the franchise of voting and why is voting important in general? You know, when I think about Prop 17 and I think about voting rights, all I can do is remember that, um, you know, this is about people that have finished their prison terms, people that have finished their prison terms, that are reentering society, uh, trying to navigate beyond the barriers uh, that impact people with felony convictions uh, on top of being on supervision and really just trying to um, create a life for themselves by finding a job, working, paying taxes. But the most important part uh, about that process for folks reentering uh, to add to that is the ability to vote. Having a voice. Having a voice. And I learned, I, I never knew how important that was until I started to get into advocacy until I started to learn about the responsibility that um, our elected officials have, that we elect into office to do what's in our best interest because our tax-paying dollars pay for what they do, to protect uh, the resources we need and the opportunities we need for a sustainable living and safe environment. And so if I'm out here paying taxes and... I want to share my voice and, and talk about what's important to me and my community for my family. I can't do that without voting. Absolutely. And it's even more important for people coming home because it's a form of civic engagement that gets, that gives somebody a, a reason to learn about the laws that are being changed and the people that are being voted on uh, because it impacts them where they live and it impacts their family. Who's representing them. Exactly. And so if, if, if we can't represent ourselves, if we can't represent our loved ones who, who can't vote, um, and we um, don't have the opportunity to vote because of a felony conviction, even though we've served our time, that is not just. Absolutely. I think, I think it's interesting, you know, for people, you know, who are nationalists or people that really believe um, in the agency of Americanism and understanding how America was formed, no taxation without representation when they uh, seceded from the British. And, you know, that notion, no taxation without representation, meant that we don't believe we should be paying you tax if we're not represented 
equally, right? And yet here we are 400 years later in 2020, and we still have people paying taxes, right, in the form of parolees, people that are, you know, doing the right thing. They're working. They're going to school. They're taking their kids. They're raising. They're doing all that other stuff. And they're being taxed by not only by the state of California, but they're being taxed heavily by the government, right? And they're paying those taxes. Yet they don't have a voice in what goes on in their community. They don't have a voice in what goes on in their state. And they don't have a voice in what goes on nationally. And to me, the contradiction or the hypocrisy in that policy of having the founding fathers of this country right in no taxation without representation, then we're doing it 400 years later to a subset of a population. And so I think that we all need to reflect on that when we talk about the history of America and the importance of uh, being taxed and being able to have a voice in the process of what goes on, whether it be for your local sheriff or whether it be for a district attorney, a school board uh, seat in some cases, a board of supervisors, those things are important because those make those elected officials and those laws have impact, especially locally, uh, on what happens in your daily life. And if you're a law-abiding citizen, it doesn't matter that at one time you made a mistake, you paid your debt to the state, right? Uh, this California Supreme Court has stated that parole is not part of the prison sentence. Uh, the highest court in the land, I mean, in, in California has said that. And so if the highest court in California has said that the prison sentence ends the day that you get out, then there's no reason in the world that we should be withholding the right to vote for men and women in California. So that's very important. Uh, when I was doing voting rights work with ACA 6 earlier in the year, uh, what I found interesting and didn't know was how close some of these races really are. Some of these congressional races and local races oftentimes are uh, won by two or 300 votes, 100 votes, very 80 close. votes, very close races. And so, you know, the opportunity to vote can really change the trajectory of what happens locally for some of these communities, right? Uh, and, you know, I like to always point to the state of Florida, you know, when they passed a couple of years ago, the right for um, felons to vote again. And now they're trying to uphold it with polling taxes, et cetera. But what's interesting, when you think back to 2000, when Bush and Gore had the hanging Chad scenario, and I think the final count was four or five hundred votes separated who became president of the United States. In Florida, there's one point five or there was one point five million people that couldn't vote couldn't because vote. they had a conviction. Think about the trajectory of the of the country, whether we went to war in Iraq, what happened in the Middle East, et cetera, it's very, very important to understand um, that dynamic and why uh, that's important. So Prop 17, we have a lot of advocates out there uh, that are pushing for Prop 17, ARC being one of them, Initiate Justice, All of Us Are None, Legal Services for Prisoners with Children, Courage, it goes on and on. But there are some opponents that talk about people not being able to vote who are on parole. And it was interesting. I was listening to a senator during the debates during ACA 6, I think it was Nielsen, who was talking about the victims um, when it comes to voting. And so, you know, one really has nothing to do with the other because we never want to uh, demean or belittle or not give proper uh, uh, honor and credit to the victims of uh, transgressions in society, no matter who does them. I mean, whether somebody's convicted or not, uh, that's very important. But it really doesn't have anything to do with voting. Can you, can you tell me what you think about that and how some politicians find these or manufacture these Things almost it seems like out of spite or like that retributive model we were talking about. And, you know, 
you know, it, it's 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 interesting when you hear those arguments, especially in the legislature, um, and you understand where they fundamentally come from. Um, it's it's a divisive argument. It's an argument that doesn't consider uh, one thing, which comes to the core values of what we believe in this country, uh, which is to be inclusive and that democracy needs everyone. And, you know, when somebody has served their time and finished their time, you know, that's it. They've, they've done their time and should be allowed to participate in what, what this, you know, country uh, is so good at or should be good at, and that is democracy. Um, and so, you know, regardless of the comments that, you know, opponents will make and whether they believe it, what they believe in, I think the most important thing for us is just to continue to, you know, meet people where they're at. And sure. that's where we're at in this country with criminal justice reform. And that's why it's such a, at a subtle place is because we have just so many hearts and minds to change uh, from that negative stereotype that has been placed on us for, for generations. Sure. Uh, being people of color. And so I think at the at the end of the day, unfortunately, I'm just going to say it's it's still racism that um, would encourage anyone uh, to think that you know people who are out here working and paying their taxes uh, should not vote because of a mistake they made in their past, even though they're you know doing the complete opposite and contributing to their communities and their societies. Um, it's a it's a question of values and, and ethics and. Um, it just goes to show how much more work we need to do in this country right. and in this state to uh, get beyond that and to work together and and really create a democracy yeah. that is for everyone. Interestingly enough, some of these people that make these arguments, they typically don't make the arguments about victims when it comes to the indigenous Native American populations, <laughs> stuff that they went through, right? It's kind of a, a one-sided, one-sided lens. But let, let's talk a little bit about Proposition 20, Uh it's given all of us scares, fits, and uh, in in this community about the possibility of rolling back. You alluded to it earlier. Uh, a lot of the positive reforms that have occurred over the last ten years. I mean, California has been able to reduce its prison population just over the last several years by about thirty thousand, forty thousand people. Um, the governor just recently declared he's going to close a couple of prisons. He's closing DJJ, the youth prison. So we'll actually yes. be able to use and repurpose those facilities for something yes. better um, for our youth and for our community members and find other ways uh, to deal with them. But yet you have this segment, kind of what we just spoke about of people who I like to call opportunists, political opportunists who will take something and twist it, shape shift it into something else in order to win hearts and minds. A lot of people may not know about Proposition 20. Can you just touch on it a little bit and why it's important for us in the fall in the criminal justice movement to defeat something like Prop 20? Yeah, so uh, Prop 20 is, um, you know, a ballot initiative. It's a it's a it's an initiative that would basically is supported by all law enforcement. You got most law enforcement supporting it, and when you read the intent of the ballot. Uh, it wants to do several things, and, and I think the heart of it is to take California back to being tough on crime. Um, and when you look at that, when ta- when California was tough on crime, um, you know we had the most overcrowded prisons. Um, we had you know youth of color, especially black youth of color, being arrested five times more than their white counterpart. Um, you know, we had kids being tried as young as 14 and 15 year olds as adults. You know, that was California being tough on crime. That's what Proposition wants to, 20 wants to do. 
Prop 20 wants to take us back to being tough on crime um, by saying, you know, if, you know, it's right now the law is if you steal or if you, if you steal $950, even if you use a credit card and steal $950, you can be charged with a misdemeanor or a felony. They want to bring that down to $250. And let's just say we have a mother and a child or a family who are in need and they, they're desperate. They have a credit card and they steal $250 worth of groceries. They want to be able to convict them not just for possibly a felony. Sure. Um, and so we, we're talking about punishing you know, the poor and, and looking at um, law in a way that would punish the poor for you know, things that are economic crimes. Economic crimes. And so not just that, but they also want to take 51 misdemeanors and change them into felonies. And so, again, we're at the heart of it. We're talking about over-punishing. We're talking about uh, that retributive model that um, there's there's no room for, for mercy. There's no room for giving people a, a way to kind of, you know, what what is how are we going to govern our people here? Are we sure. going to be tough on crime? Or we can look at different ways to how to help folks who are making bad decisions. And so, unfortunately, this would roll back um, efforts that have been won in AB 109, um, you know, Prop 57. And, you know, we've come a long way. And to allow Prop 20 to pass uh, and taking us back to an era that did nothing good for us sure. in terms of public safety is why we have to vote no on Prop 20. It's reactionary politics at its at its best, right? And what's, what's interesting, what I wanted to point out, you mentioned the 250 number, $250, which, you know, basically is a pair of Jordans for a kid uh, 18 years old who might go to prison under Proposition 20. What's interesting to me is, is that as a state, we spend about $80,000 a year to keep a man or a woman incarcerated. And for juveniles, that number jumps up to like $400,000 a year. And so you have to question, I think, right? How much sense does it make that somebody steals $200 worth of property, $500 worth of property, even $1,000 worth of property? We're going to spend 80 times more per year. So if a person gets a three-year sentence, we're going to spend $240,000, a quarter of a million dollars to lock somebody up who stole $950 worth of property. Now, we're not saying that that shouldn't be addressed, Right fact of the theft and, and the $950 and, and the, the, the ability to restore that is an issue. And that's a different conversation. The question is, as you mentioned, are we going to over incarcerate over police and then overspend? I mean, I, I'm, one of the reasons that I think we got to this place in criminal justice reform is because in the nineties, as you mentioned under Pete Wilson, it was like, even if a person stole a slice of pizza, give them a life sentence, right? If they had, a, if they had a strike or two, um, and it cost a lot of money, right? Over the course of 20, 25 years, it cost a million dollars to lock each person up. Multiply that times 180,000, I think. Uh, CDC was at a peak and it just, it can't be sustained. Exactly. And you know what? As you were saying something, it just made me think about the fact that, you know, back in the days, punishment was punishing people physically. And as the law evolved, it now punishes people with felonies. Felony convictions are one of the hardest things to to get off of your record. Sure. And so if we're now deciding to punish people um, from misdemeanors to felonies and tagging them for the rest of their lives when these are for nonviolent crimes that we're talking about. Sure. And we want to tag people with a felony conviction that 
will exclude them from so many opportunities um, that people need just to have uh, life and opportunity. That's not the direction we want to go in. And, and, and so that's when we think about that, um, we actually are going backwards with Prop 20 by tagging more people with felony convictions when, they, when they're still human beings, they have the opportunity to grow, to mature, to be redeemed and change their lifestyle. Unfortunately, felony convictions are hard to shake off, and so that's it's another example of why, you know, this this proposition that we have to vote no on is just another tool of mass incarceration right. we don't need. Absolutely, I was I was reading, and I just want to touch back before we go to Prop Twenty Five about the eighty thousand number. I was reading a report, I think it was by the PPIC or, or another group, and they talked about that eighty thousand dollar number, but then they juxtaposed that with how much was actually spent on a person's rehabilitation. And so the amount for the rehabilitation, I think was like 500 to a thousand bucks somewhere up in that range per person, but $80,000 a year to lock that person up. And so prop 20, interestingly enough, wants to over criminalize again, continue to go back to that model to lock more people up. And they're not talking about the cost of doing that and whether that's worth it and whether we should be throwing away human capital and human potential for those large sums of money over relatively minor economic crimes. Um, again, not to dismiss, you know, the importance of, of those things, uh, but tip, typically people reach out for economic crimes out of desperation or what they feel like is desperation. And it, it forces them in a position to reach in a way that they may not normally if their economic situation was different. So I appreciate that piece. Um, on to Prop 25. Uh, which is a bail initiative. I know that's dear to your heart. I'd like for you to talk about it and why it's important uh, and tell people what it's about. Yes. So um, Prop 25, what Prop 25 basically does is it ends money bail by completely getting rid of the bail industry out of California. California would be the first state in the entire country to completely get rid of the bail industry if we vote yes on Prop 25. At the same time, what it will do is replace the bail industry with a risk assessment tool um, that I myself don't even like. Uh, I've been judged by risk assessments my whole entire life, even while I was incarcerated, although a different type of life, even although a, although a different type of risk assessment tool um, is still a tool nevertheless that um, can be inaccurate. Um, that, you know, will always have work to be done. Um, but when I look at Prop 25 and, um, you know, Prop 25 is what's called a veto referendum. And what a veto referendum is, is that people can collect enough signatures um, if they have the money to do it because it sure. costs a lot of money to collect signatures. A lot of money in California. Um, but in this case, the American bail industry had a lot of money to put behind this and collected enough signatures to say, you know, uh, we want the voters to decide whether SB 10, that the governor of California, uh, Governor Brown passed and um, current governor Newsom, who was lieutenant governor at the time, endorsed as well, as well as the entire leadership in our uh, California state, uh, assembly members and senators, our Democratic leadership. Um, they all vote. They, they all supported SB 10, and so the bail industry said, "Well, actually, let's let let's allow the our voters to decide if you, as the California leaders, are right by passing SB 10." Sure. 
And, uh, you know, I was the policy director of the Anti-Recidivism Coalition at the time, working on SB10 on its second year with a bunch of other amazing advocates. And, you know, it was a difficult thing to come to conclusion to uh, because a lot of us couldn't get around the risk assessment part. Um, but, you know, when I would take it back to our organization and to the members of our organization who were formerly incarcerated, there were several things that stood out to us formerly incarcerated folks, especially me personally. And one was is that when I go back to my own arrest, um, where at the age of 15, you know, they posed a million-dollar bail on me. And obviously that was something I couldn't afford. But how is it that if another kid in the same situation whose parents did have a million dollars, would able to bail him out, but not me. What kind of argument is that when it comes to innocent until proven guilty? What kind of picture does that paint um, when we're providing a system that's based on on money and, 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 and not the facts? Uh, and so for me, when we looked at SB10, especially for, for, for the women in our organization who would always tell me that, you know, sometimes... Uh, we would be arrested for, you know, working for pimps. And in Juvenile Hall, their pimps would bail them out right away and put them back on the streets. Sure. And in, in their mind, all they wanted was just to stay incarcerated in Juvenile Hall so they didn't have to continue to do that. You know, we're talking about getting rid of a tool or a mechanism of mass incarceration, which is the bail industry. And we're talking about trying to move this, this state uh, this incarceration system, one that really is about uh, innocent until proven guilty. And, you know, yes, the risk assessment is, is not perfect. The bill is not perfect. Um, but one thing I do know, uh, one thing I have seen throughout the history of California is that we can improve things legislatively. Sure. And the bigger thing that we needed to prioritize was first and foremost getting rid of one of the strongest, uh, Companies in this in this country, which is a bail industry. Sure, I want to I want to I want to I want to peel back the layer. I gotta I gotta give you a little pushback because I hear it from my brothers and sisters out there uh, who talk about risk assessments. Everything you said about uh, the economic disadvantages of bail is accurate. Uh, I don't think anybody would question that. I think that uh, on the surface and what was was indicative from 2018 when the uh, SB 10 passed, everybody was in favor of it. But I'm hearing from people on the streets and people out there in the community that, wait a minute, risk assessments are racially biased. Risk assessments take data that biases and weighs against people who live in the inner city uh, based on race, based on the amount of police contacts, based on a whole slew of factors that disadvantage Latinos and blacks. And so what's interesting to me is that you have this community of people that do social impact work up and down the state, right? San Diego to Pelican Bay, uh, all good people, you know, all want to do the right thing, all want to advance criminal justice reform. But there seems to be this divide, this divisiveness between the economic impact and the social racial impact. What do you say to people who challenge the notion that we should sacrifice one for the other and who, in essence, want to throw the baby out with the bathwater uh, with SB10? I mean, I love disagreements. There's nothing wrong with that. It's it's what's healthy within our community. What's not healthy is when we take those disagreements externally and we can't have those conversations as to what would be the most appropriate, the bail industry or a risk assessment. 
Um, and unfortunately, there's a lot of times where when we look at the politics in it and we look at the opportunity we had under Governor Jerry Brown, who was leaving office, um, and the appetite that we had in the legislature, when you understand that and the opportunity um, basically to take them to take the advantage and to really disarm the you know criminal justice system by taking away one of its tools that have really taken advantage of our people for decades, I want to take that opportunity every time because what was left, yes, a risk assessment was left, um, and yes, you know they can be administered. Uh, you know, with with uh, racial bias, it's not the math that's going to be racially biased. It's sure. the people who administer them. Um, you know, those are the people we'll be watching, and that is why even Hertzberg passed SB thirty six the sure. year after. What is that SB thirty six? So it's to make sure that we follow the data. You know, let me, I'll just be clear: we're going to follow the data, and we're going to see how people are being assessed through these tools and whether it is racially biased or not. And, you know, when the data comes out, which won't lie and we'll have enough of that we'll collect this time, we can actually see and say, you know what, this is where it needs to be fixed. Or, you know what, it's not working out. Let's come back and, and, and make sure that it does what it's supposed to do and, and, and not detain more people than it actually uh, is predicting to by, by, by opposition um, the fact of the matter is, when you look at the rest of the country and what um, Washington has done, New you look at what New Jersey has done, they have implemented the same measures that we, uh, that SB 10 have. And they're actually seeing a decline in pretrial detention when you look at the research. And this research was done by Harvard. Sure. Um, and so I would just say that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, Big, big move that this entire country can learn from in terms of, you know, get re- getting rid of uh, the the most important thing with it is the bail industry and working with what we have now together. Um, sure. But if we don't do it together, if we if we continue to have external divisive conversations externally that hurt our movement and we can't stand together, right. it's going to be harder to fix. And that's unfortunately this is the moment where we're at. Right. And unfortunately, if if we do not support uh, and vote yes on Prop Twenty Five, then what we're telling uh, we're telling our elected officials that they made the wrong decision, and not only that, um, but we're also um, doing what happened in New York. You know, there was a rollback in in New York's pre-dollar detention reform. Sure. And if we have a rollback on the East Coast, and if we have a rollback on the West Coast. Imagine what opponents are going to say now and how that's going to hurt us in this movement when we've been progressing moving forward. And more people are going to be locked up. Uh, We only have a couple minutes, Michael. I want to close with two things that maybe you can take us out with. A, I want to know what you think the the future of California criminal justice reform looks like. And then I want to know what's next for you because in reality I want to hear about what your plans are, what your vision is where you see yourself, some of your goals, objectives, and how you're going to help us get over some of these humps in the state of California. You know, I, I wish I was uh, smart enough to predict what California is going to look like. Um, you know, all I can say is it's it's going to be up to the voters out there to decide this November 3rd. You know, we have an, a very, very important DA race in L.A. Um, that I'm keeping my close eye on, such as, and, and I know everyone else is, um, that, 
race can literally change the face of California and criminal justice reform. You're not, you're not suggesting they should throw out Jackie Lacey, are you? You know, I, I, I like what, I like, uh, I like what you're saying. Um, but what I'm going to say is, you know, LA County being one of the biggest counties with the biggest county jail in the entire country would say a lot about that race. Sure. Um, you know, and, and if, if that goes well, um, and we look at our legislature and we get behind a governor who, um, Governor Gavin Newsom, who, let's face it, he's doing a magnificent job given what he's, the circumstances we're in. You know, if we continue to get behind him and, and not be so, um, bent for, you know, the things that he doesn't do for us, understanding, you know, everything that we're battling, um, I think we can continue to have further successes if we come together though. Um, if we fight alongside together, because I honestly believe that, you know, um, what's next for me is continuing to bring people together. Um, sure. Because at the heart of criminal justice reform, it's not about, you know, changing the hearts and minds of people who already believe in it. It's about changing the hearts and minds of people who don't believe in criminal justice reform. And if we can't come together and provide them an example uh, of what that looks like, then we're in trouble. And so my hope is that, you know, I, I continue to fight alongside folks like you and all my brothers and sisters uh, uh, together, even though we disagree, um, because I know that on the other side of that disagreement, you know, we're going to continue to fight um, and fight to make sure that this is about public safety for everyone and not just for a certain few. Absolutely. I appreciate that, brother. And we appreciate your leadership and all the work that you've done. Uh, I look up to you. You're a mentor of mine. Uh, continue to press and do the work that you're doing and bringing people together and bridging that gap so that we, that way we can have some successes in the future. I'm Ken Oliver. This has been the Policy Hour with Michael Mendoza. We appreciate your time. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of the Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice. So please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.